Amen. Great job. Thanks, kids, for leading us along in that one. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. We're in Matthew chapter 2 today as we finish our sermon series on the Christmas story. And we've already heard Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 in our call to worship, so I will not read it again. But I just want to take a few moments. Uh, if you have an order of worship, you see on the back there, there's some sermon notes. I just want to talk about the, I want to introduce the characters in this story. Second, make a few, make just a couple of observations. Third, we'll have a short kid's sermon, maybe about the time you're getting to your wit's end. We'll have a kid's sermon down here on the front. And then as I send them back, we'll make some application for the sermon today. Kids, you have in your packet that you got a bingo card. If you can't play bingo in church, where can you play it, right? And so some of the words that I say are there, and you can cover up with stickers on your bingo card. If I say star or Jesus or wise man, I'm guessing those are some of the words that are on there. So be listening closely for those. Um, let's talk about the characters that are in this story. Uh, let's just start right in verse 1 of, of Matthew chapter 2. We read there, now after Jesus was born, so Jesus is a character in this story. We're going to be talking about him more as we go. He was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king. So we'll talk about Herod in just a moment in verse 3, about why he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. But just from the very first sentence, not even a whole sentence, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king. Just notice that Matthew roots his account in real time and space history. He says it takes place in the days of Herod, who is well documented by historians and people outside the Bible. We know that Herod died sometime in the spring of 4 BC after a lunar eclipse in March of that year and before Passover that year. Josephus, one of many historians who documents that. And that means that if Jesus was born while he was still reigning, that Jesus was born in about 5 or 6 B.C. Now the question is, how could Jesus be born before Christ? If we measure everything by when he was born, how is Jesus born in 5 or 6 B.C.? Well, you should know. As you read the scripture and getting the timeline right in your mind, that the folks who divided history were off a few years. So Jesus was actually born in 5 or 6 BC. Let's keep going in the text. We read, Behold, our next character, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So wise men are the next character in the story. And if you've been with us here in this sermon series, we've learned that whenever Matthew uses the word behold, that something crazy is going to happen. Something odd, something unusual, something you wouldn't expect, something out of the ordinary, like an angel appears from the throne of heaven. Uh, so something crazy happens. This just says behold, wise men, your translation may say magi, came from the east. What's so crazy about that? Well, in order to know, you need to understand that wise men are not technically men endowed with great wisdom. As your translation may say, magi, M-A-G-I, you can see that we derive our word magic 
from the name for these men who were experts in astrology. They were experts in the interpretation of dreams and other secret arts that the Old Testament had specifically forbidden, right? That people were supposed to follow the maker of the stars and not look to the stars for their guidance. So these men did something that the Old Testament specifically had forbidden and if you know your old testament and matthew's original audience which is largely jewish would have known their old testament well then you know that the magi were the enemies of the prophet daniel if you go back and read in daniel 3 it was the magi who point out to king nebuchadnezzar that shadrach meshach and abednego are not bowing down to the image he created and it was the magi that get shadrach meshach and abednego thrown into the fiery furnace and in daniel 6 it's the magi who uh, report to king darius and get him to throw daniel into the lion's den so the reason this is odd is one of the last people you would expect to come and worship the Jewish Messiah would be pagan, Gentile, astrologers, uncircumcised, unclean, doing things that the scripture forbids far away from God. Yet Matthew says, behold, check this out. You're not going to believe this. (laughs) These pagans came in order to worship the Christ child. That's why it's odd and crazy. Let's keep going to the text. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, let's talk about that. Why was Herod troubled? Well, this is a real threat to his throne. Herod was an Edomite, which means he's descended from Esau, which means he is not of the royal line. And he is appointed to be king of the Jews by the Romans who were in occupation at the time. And these wise men show up and say, we're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. One that is in the line of Judah. One who is in the line of David. One who can rightfully claim the throne and be the king of the Jews. So obviously... Herod sees this as a real threat, and with just the news of his birth, stir up freedom riots among those who already hated Herod and now had a reason to revolt him, which is why later in verse 7, he secretly goes back and talks to these folks because he doesn't want to stir up this news in the kingdom. So it's understandable why Herod would be troubled. Why is all Jerusalem troubled with him? Well, here's the reason why. They were disturbed because this guy, Herod, would just go off the deep end about insignificant threats to his throne. He had killed his favorite wife and her mother, his mother-in-law. He had killed three of his sons who he thought were scheming in order to take his throne. And so if he's willing to do that for things that are not legitimate threats, what is he going to do when there is a legitimate threat to the throne? And Matthew answers that question in verse 16. You can read what he does. He sends soldiers in to kill every male child in Bethlehem and the surrounding area that is two years old and younger to eliminate the threat to the throne. So Herod is a cruel tyrant. And that's why all Jerusalem would be disturbed if he was troubled. Now what does he do? Verse 4, he assembles all the chief priests and scribes of the people and inquire of them, hey, where is the Christ supposed to be born? He's finding out when from these magi, where he's asking the chief priests, the scribes, your translation may say the teachers of the law. These were religious leaders. 
And by this time, they were loyal to King Herod's agenda and served as advisors in his palace. So they got to enjoy all the benefits of being an advisor to the king. They weren't oppressed like the rest of the Jewish people. They enjoyed a comfortable lifestyle, eating at the king's table, enjoying the benefits that being a friend of the king would invite. And these folks are religious experts. They immediately are able to say, yeah, it's the prophet Micah in Micah 5 and verse 2 that says the Christ, the Messiah, is to be born in Bethlehem. So they know automatically. These are people who know their scripture. Now think about this with me. These are religious people, good Jewish men who are looking for a Messiah And they know the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And here come these men saying, the Messiah has been born. Where is he? The one that was the hope of the Jewish people. The one who would make all things right. And here are folks saying that he has supposedly had been born. Yet they don't join the wise men on their quest. They don't go to Bethlehem looking for them. It's odd. More in a moment on that. We'll get to this back in the application. But those are the characters in the story. Jesus, Herod, the religious leaders, all Jerusalem. Those are the characters. Let me just make a couple of observations. Number one, look at what they quote from Micah. Micah, uh, they, they quote Micah chapter 5. Here it's Matthew 2 and verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is so interesting. Over 700 years before he was born in Bethlehem, God predicts through the prophet where the Messiah is going to come from. God is trustworthy. God is faithful to his promises. God is all-powerful and can work out his will in this world. Nothing is impossible for God. Now notice that this ruler that's going to come out of Jerusalem is a shepherd for the people of Israel, right? He's a shepherd. He's not an autocratic tyrant like Herod, but he cares for his flock. He'll lead them in the way they should go. He will provide for them. He will protect them, not oppress them as Herod has done. This ruler who is coming is a huge contrast to Herod. Now, what difference does that make to us? Listen, a lot of people are afraid to surrender their life to Christ. They're afraid to bend the knee to him, to make him the most important thing in their life because we're afraid of what he might ask us to do. I mean, he might send me as a missionary to Africa. I might be practicing law one day and he calls me into the ministry. I just don't know what this God may do. So I'm hesitant to bow the knee to trust him. Listen to me. You can trust him. He is a shepherd. He cares and protects you. He leads you in the way that you should go. Don't be afraid to surrender your life to him. He is a good shepherd and a good king. One other observation. There's always been something about this text that bothered me. Look at verses 9 and 10. Herod sends them, says, go find this king, then come back and tell me so I can worship him. So look what verse 9 and 10 says. There's going to be another behold here, so follow me on that. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When the star 
Uh, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I'm so confused. If our interpretation is a behold is right, why do they rejoice when they see a star that they've already seen before? That didn't make a lot of sense. It seems to me that when they rejoice with exceedingly great joy, that would happen when they see Jesus. Not when they see the star, they're surprisingly reserved by the time they get to Jesus and merely worship him. What is going on here in the text? Well, let's look at the text closely. Notice, Matthew does not say that the star that the wise men had seen led them to Jerusalem. Right? Look back at verse 2. What do they say? They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose... And have come to worship him. You see, I don't know a lot about astrology, but basically, they would have seen a star or a planet in a certain sphere in the sky that let them know a ruler was rising in the region of Judea, uh, that a ruler was rising of the Jewish people. So that's what they would have seen the star when it rises. So obviously, they assume. He's going to be in the capital city. So they go to the capital, which is Jerusalem, and they go to where you would expect to find a great king, to the palace, and begin to ask what is going on. So they go to this capital city, probably thinking the new king's going to be there. They get the runaround. People don't know what they're talking about. There's no king born here. We just got a king who's been on the throne a long time. And then they're told that the Messiah would be born in this little podunk town about five or six miles away. But the king and his officials don't seem to really care. They don't really seem to be happy or threatened by this in any way whatsoever. The wise men had to be thinking, could this be right? (laughs) Did I just give up months, maybe up to a year of my life to travel here to meet this great king and there is none? They had to be thinking, why would this very significant ruler be born in a poor little town away from royalty, away from the pomp and circumstance? And how is he going to be so great if he's the head of this country that's lost its freedom to Rome? I would imagine they're saying, well, we've come this far. We might as well check it out. It's right down the road. But I don't know. I'm not so sure about this. And so they leave and begin to travel at night. And you should know it was not unusual to travel at night. Number one, it was cooler. Number two, if you're an expert in the stars, you can use them to direct your path, much like a a ship's captain would do on the sea. So they're traveling at night. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose some months or up to a year earlier, all of a sudden they see the star again. And they rejoice with exceedingly great joy because seeing the star confirms the advice that they got, that Bethlehem is the right place. When they see the star, they realize this is the king. There is a king. We have not come in vain. And so they excitedly go to Bethlehem and it encouraged them they were on the right track and were doing the right thing. All right. At this point, I want to ask the kids to come down. You can bring your parent with you if you want to. Meet me right down here at the the table right down here. I've got something here that I want to show you. So any kids right down here on the front row, you can sit on the steps. Just come down here and meet me at the table here. All right. Hey, Perry, good to see you. Glad you're here. Happy New Year. Thank you guys for coming up. Way to go. 
All right, it's good to see all these kids. Just gather around the table right here. Can everybody see what we've got up here? All right, let me ask you a question. What is this that we've got up here? Somebody tell us what this is. Yes, ma'am. It's a nativity scene, right? Yeah, and who are these people? Who are these little statues? Shepherds, Mary, Joseph, the wise men. You may have a nativity scene like this at your house. Those are the sheep. You're exactly right. Very good. Well, listen, I'm going to read you a few verses out of the Bible, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. Let me tell you the questions I'm going to ask you so that you can be listening to the story and answer them, okay? Here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask, where did the wise men find Jesus? Where did the wise men find him? How is Jesus described? What does it say about Jesus? We're going to look here and say, let me read it, and then you can answer, who is with Jesus when we get there, okay? All right, let's listen. So the wise men see the star. They rejoice with great joy. Let's pick up in verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. All right, so where was Jesus when the wise men found him? In a manger, right? That's the popular answer, right? And that's why we have this sermon, right? Because listen to what the text says. It says, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, right? Yes, Jesus was born and he was placed in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And the shepherds come and see him the night he was born. But the wise men don't come until much later, by this time, Jesus is already in a house. And notice it says the child was with his mother, not the baby. Jesus was like a toddler by this time. He had been born a year or so earlier. So he's like a year, maybe even up to two years old. I know, I feel betrayed too. Like all my nativity scenes, all my Sunday school. I mean, I know, it's like we told it wrong, Right? So by the time the wise men, the shepherds do come the night Jesus is born, and the wise men don't come until a year or so later. So what would be wrong with this nativity scene then? Yeah, you wouldn't have the shepherds and the wise men there at the same time. Now, you may have a nativity scene at home, and you don't have to go and break any of the figures or throw them away or anything. But you will know and can tell people the shepherds came the night Jesus was born and the wise men didn't come until sometime later. Little known fact. All right, now, next question. I'm going to read another verse and I want you to tell me how many wise men were there and what gifts did they bring, okay? Listen up to the text. Ready, verse 12, uh, continuing on. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. All right, how many wise men does the text say that there are? How many? Everybody says three. We even sang a we three kings of Orient are this morning. Guess what? The text doesn't say how many there are. It just says wise men. Because uh, we were saying, let's look and see how many. It just says there's more than one. Now it does say how many gifts are there. Three gifts. 
gold and frankincense and myrrh. Right. And so we traditionally have three wise men, one for each gift. But I suppose there could have only been two or there could have been 13. We don't know. There's just more than one. Wow, we're just shattering all those myths today, aren't we? All right. Last thing I want to ask you. What's your big takeaway? When you go back home and look at your nativity scene, how do you want to change it when you get home? To this, right? Yeah, this one, with either the shepherds and the baby Jesus in the manger or the wise men with an older Jesus, but not both together. All right, great, good. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, Jesus is not here in this scene. He's not in this one. All right. All right, good to see everybody. As folks make their way back to their seat, adults, let me just say that the wise men coming was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. Psalm 72 said that the kings of the nations would come and would bring their treasures and fall down before him. Isaiah chapter 60 said that the king of the kings of nations will bring their wealth to this Isaiah 60 king. Specifically, it says they'll bring gold and frankincense. And that this Isaiah 60 king will make all things right. So Matthew is saying that the child they found in the house is the Isaiah 60 king that will make all things right. All right, let's do some application now. Just a couple of things quickly to think about. Number one, please know that as you come to this text, that Matthew challenges the original audience in their prejudices against outsiders, right? They would have been shocked to hear that pagan Gentile astrologers were among the first to come and worship Jesus. So if we're going to handle this text correctly, then we need to allow it to challenge our prejudices as well. So think about that with me. The, old, the original audience is surprised that, that these pagans would come because as far as they're concerned, if these people worship Jesus, anyone could come and worship Jesus. Even the most pagan of pagans may respond to him. So, of course, the question for us is, who are the magi in your life? Who are the wise men? Who are those people you think are too far away? They're too far gone. They would never bend the knee to Jesus. Maybe it's that boss who gives you a hard time for being a Christian. College students, maybe it's that professor that you feel ridicules you for your Christian faith. Maybe it is a neighbor that you have. Maybe it's relatives that you've even seen during the holiday. Whoever that is, we need to be asking ourselves, who has God put in our lives that we think are just too far gone? They would never bend the knee to Christ and pray for them. And have hope for them. And continually, gently, patiently share the truth of the good news of the gospel with them. Because this text shows us that there's no one who is too far away. That God can't use crazy things in order to bring them to himself. That's the application for those outside of us in our culture. But second application, think about your own heart. This story 
calls the reader to make a personal decision. Matthew is using a very common ancient literary device which presents contrasting characters and invites the reader to identify with one or more of them. So let's see if you identify with any of these folks. We outline the characters. Number one, the king, Herod. He seeks to kill Jesus. These are folks who are hostile to Christianity. Maybe you're here today and you're not even sure all this stuff is true. Somebody just invited you or you just wanted to come check it out and see what it was like. Let me just tell you, we are thrilled that you are here. I want you to know that Redeemer Church is a place that you can get honest answers to honest questions. And we want people who are skeptical to come here and to study the Bible with us. Let me just offer that this account is extremely historically reliable and it rings true. Just a couple things to think about. If you're skeptical, you should know that leaders in this day frequently dispatched official delegations to congratulate new rulers in other realms. Secondly, the interest in astrology was rampant in the day and it was very popular in the cultures in this area at this time. Third, the kings uh, east of Jerusalem and Persia or Babylon had court magicians or magi in their court that were known for wisdom and divination and astrology and the interpretation of dreams. The story is well rooted in history as we already examined with specifically the date of Herod and the people and the characters in this story are documented outside the Bible. But let me give you this, one last thing for your consideration. Just consider this if you're skeptical. Remember that Jewish folks were opposed to astrology. The Old Testament forbids it. And so a Jewish biographer of Jesus such as Matthew would probably not write about the pagan magi astrologers being among the first to come and worship Jesus at the prompting of a star unless that's what really happened. Because it's just hard to believe. It's outside of something that someone would make up. So this story has the ring of truth. And I would just invite you to be open to that, to continue to come to Redeemer Church, and to continue to study the scriptures with us. Second group, see if you relate to this group. What about these religious folks who are indifferent to what's going on? They knew where the Messiah was supposed to be born. And here are wise men claiming that he had been born, but they do not join them to go and see if he is really there. Imagine that. Think about that. Those who are the most religious, those who claim to be God's servants, those who know the Bible the best, yet are apathetic, yet are indifferent to what God is doing in the world. They don't seem to care about the one God has sent to save them and to make all things right. They are more concerned about preserving their position of power and influence and possessions and comfort. Wow. Do you feel that? People who know the Bible the best, who want to maintain our comfort who want to maintain, who are afraid to step out in faith because we don't know what that will mean for us or what it might mean that we would lose. Not taking into account what the scripture assures us that we will gain. Maybe that's where your heart is today and I would invite you just to confess that, just to say, 
I am far away from God and indifferent to what this book says. Lord, would you, would you light my heart on fire again? Would you send your spirit into my life to give me a, a hunger for your word and for what you're doing in the world? The last group I think we need to consider are the wise men. They gave up a lot. They traveled months or even a year. They were willing to risk looking foolish to everybody around them. They worship this king who will rule all the nations and make things right, even though they do not see it yet, but they have faith that he will do it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy when they knew they had found him, and they fell down, and they worshiped him and gave him priceless gifts. Will you respond that way? Are you willing to give up your time for him? Are you willing to give up possessions for him? Are you willing to give him everything that you have and everything that you are? We're in such a better position to see his influence over the nations because as we sit here today, he already has followers from many nations. Do you believe that he will one day return and make all things right even though we don't see it yet? Will you worship him and give him the highest priority in your life? Let's pray and ask God to do that in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read the text, that you've preserved it, so that we aren't relying on our traditions and what we've always been told, but we can see the truth in your word. I pray that you would give us a hunger for your word and that you would meet us there, not to be scholars of the Bible, but to be people who walk with you and who know you well. Please come and do that here at Redeemer Church. Make us people who are concerned about the culture around us, that want to join you in what you are doing in the world, even at the risk of great loss to ourselves. Give us a heart for those who are lost and hostile toward you. Give us answers. Give us patience. Give us stamina to continue at the task. I ask that you would not let anything distract us from the work that you have us to do, that we would be steadfastly focused on making disciples and ruling every area in our life in a way that is consistent with your word, that you might bring great honor and glory to this place. Please come and do that in us and through us. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.